Sensibly Speaking podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and with video here on YouTube. And uh, okay, guys, this week we are going to be doing a podcast that is going to be focused and centered around the the subject of the law, American law specifically. And uh, I am going to be talking with a, a guest that I have had on before. His name is Cyprian Ivanov. He is between law school and working as a lawyer. So he's got this, you know, all this wonderful knowledge that I'm gonna like pick his brain about different things. And he actually reached out to me on this because he had a couple ideas of some things that we could do a podcast about on. And I thought, you know, one that I have wanted to follow up on personally for myself, and this is this podcast is almost just for me, and I'm just kind of recording it for you guys. But this one is about the law because after doing, um, you guys might remember a few months ago, I did a podcast with John P. Capitalist about the subject of sovereign citizens. And this is a, a sort of cult-like movement. I mean, not really, it's not exactly the same as a cult paradigm, but it's definitely a pseudo-law, pseudo-whatever, kind of weird gathering of people or community of people who believe that they have found the secret to unlock the American legal system and be free of any consequences of law <laughs> which is a very interesting uh, and very individual kind of view that they're not really part of society. They're just here to kind of, you know, take advantage of it because they can, because they think that the law says this and says that and says these other things that it doesn't say. We went over the belief system and how it's sort of formulated and, and who the people are that are kind of pushing this sort of thing in my previous podcast, but there were a lot of questions about the law that I think people who are not lawyers, certainly me, have a lot of questions about. Because the law, the legal system in the United States doesn't seem to be focused on, uh, well, it's very easy for people in distress to look at what happens in the legal system and think to themselves, this isn't justice. <laughs> And in many, you know, and, and, and there are definitely instances where that is true and people get short shrifted or they don't get what, you know, that what, you know, you would think uh, they should get. And, and there are other uh, instances where, you know, plenty of instances where people are found guilty and go to jail and, and it, when the system works just fine. So what, you know, so how do these, how do these things happen? What's the, what's the purpose of all of this? And how is it that sovereign citizens specifically, but I think more broadly, all of us, what, is, what, are the, what are some of the principles and things that we need to know and understand about the legal system so that we can all better take advantage of what it does offer us and not look at it for something that it's not? Because I, I think for myself, I think that's the, probably the biggest thing about the legal system is people think it's one thing when it actually it's kind of put together for for other reasons. So, uh, so Cyprian, hi, welcome to the show. Hello again. Uh, well, uh, when I first saw that you were doing a podcast with John P. Capitalist on sovereign citizens, one, I was excited to see it, and two, there are so many points that I wanted to add to. 
Yes, exactly. I, I'm absolutely sure that's the case. And I'm really glad that you reached out to me on this because this was a this was one of those things where I was sort of like, I don't even know who to talk to about this because sometimes you kind of forget who your resources are. <laughs> you know, you, you build up a, enough of them over time. And, and I don't exactly have like a, a database or a three by five card system or something. I just kind of think about, you know, people I know and stuff as I go. So I'm sort of making it up as I go along. So, uh, so thank you for reaching out on this. First off, I guess let's get out of the way first. What, um, what was it? How, you know, when you saw that podcast and you, you see what these people are doing with the law and, and from your knowledge, what do you see as the problem with all of this? Um, that they are trying to predict how the legal system would respond if it took into account the factors that they know and care about, but only those. But ah. society is made up of so many more people, so many more factors that any individual effort to predict the law based purely on one's own expectations is going to fail. That's an interesting point. So what sort of factors are you thinking about there when you say this? Because we have, um, you know, people think the law exists. Yeah, that, for them. So what, so what, uh, what are you looking at there? Um, before I forget, there is one point I'd like to make. Yeah. Uh, sovereign citizens, I prefer to call them pseudo lawyers because it's not real law. And it's a little broader than the than the subset that call themselves sovereign citizens. Great. Uh, yeah, agreed. Uh, but there is an overlap with cults. So the Christian identity movement was around back in the 70s and 80s. And Pasta Comitatus was a kind of scary group that was operating in the uh, 80s, even to the late 90s sorry, early 90s. And they inherited some pseudo-legal ideas like the uh, 16th Amendment wasn't properly uh, ratified. It was, but oh well. There, there's a reason why they're called, there's a reason why they're called pseudo-legal. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, to think that there's some procedural error in the passing of a law or regulation or statute, and that's why you don't have to follow it, is such a, such a fascinating idea to me. And sometimes it's true. But when it's been a century or so, that's <laughs> right. not likely to be the case. You think? <laughs> right. And, and is it that way because at this point in time, after all these years, that law has now, it's, it's on the books, it's officially been used in courts of law, you know, precedents have been set with it. Is that, is that kind of why that, it, you know, it, that, it, that it gets, uh, that, that it would be legit? There are a couple of reasons. One, uh, it would have been argued a lot, more a lot more close to the time it was enacted. So if there was any dispute and it was, very clearly a bad idea. It would have been overturned rather quickly. So if it's been around for a long time, it probably hasn't been that obviously uh, illegitimate. Two, 
you build up a series of expectations around it that make keeping it around a good idea. Not automatically because it works the way it was intended, but because it works in a way that other people find useful. Mm. So, uh, Is that a matter of interpretation then? That's a matter of practicality because it's just a law that puts, puts forth a rule. It doesn't have to do what people expected it to, to be beneficial. Right. So it could be that the lawmakers intended one thing and and maybe it fulfills that purpose and maybe it doesn't, but it might end up fulfilling a whole other purpose because the wording of the law can be stretched in that direction. And maybe even though the lawmakers didn't have that idea when they wrote it. In the words of Justice Holmes, uh, the life of the law is experience, not logic. Law is what has worked not what we think would work. Right. Interesting. So in that way, it's kind of a very practical kind of science in a certain way. Yes, there is even a philosophy called legal science, but uh, people kind of abandoned it because it it veered too close to over-optimism about we can predict the absolute best outcome. Okay. And if you know anything about the variability of human life, that's just not going to happen. Exactly. Exactly. But, um, okay. Fair enough. So what? So what other factors could there be uh, that these guys are that these pseudo lawyers are ignoring? Well, you have that they're ignoring the many different factors like evidence. Uh, oh, just other that. people's interest. Just, just oh, a little. <laughs> I don't have my evidence book with me, but uh, that's just a little bit of evidence. Right. Uh, uh, You have the degree. So that means convincing not just the people in the court, but having a record to convince people outside of the court. There's a reason why we think O.J. Simpson probably did murder uh, some people, but even though it didn't meet the standard of evidence required to actually put him behind bars, it was enough that everybody else could form a rational judgment based on it. One one thing that keeps on popping up, when uh, people get stopped by the cops and they keep on regurgitating some, uh, some sort of authority of various misinterpreted statutes or court cases, it's important to remember that argument from authority can be valid in law. Not that it's automatically valid, but that it can be because it has to do with the predictable application of government force. But the thing is, to well, what would be an example of that? Uh, uh, for example, tinted windows are illegal in uh, New Jersey, but they're Mm -hmm. legal in Florida. Mm -hmm. And there's some time to make sure that people know what they're supposed to do. So if someone from New Jersey uh, has tinted windows, they have a pretty good idea that they're not supposed to. So that's kind of a magnet for cops to uh, take a look at them. I'm Um, not not sure how that's a... So if they cite a case from Florida allowing it, you know that's not the binding authority in New Jersey because it's about what New Jersey authorities want. 
about what the New Jersey legislature has wanted, not what the uh, not what the Florida legislature wants. So you get weird cases like people in Canada quoting the U.S. Supreme Court or U.S. statutes when trying to argue a point of Canadian law. And are you saying that's legitimate or that's not legitimate that, for them to do? That's illegitimate. Okay, it's, yeah, because that because it seems not separate. Is, I mean, yeah, right. A case where it is legitimate is, say, you have a contract dispute, and the Supreme Court has ruled one way. Uh, so you you uh, may not take this factor into account when considering the legitimacy of a contract. So all the other courts follow that because we want a kind of predictable standard. Uh, so. Remember the gay gay marriage cases. You used to have a bunch of differences between states, but when the Supreme Court ruled, that made everything uniform because oh, the Supreme Court overruled okay. that. Okay, so it's so the hierarchical structure is, you know, the the local court here in you know Colorado and Denver has authority over its area, but. You that's the whole ladder of taking the case up the scale to the appeals and then the state and then the state, like the state Supreme Court and then ultimately the federal Supreme Court. That, that like that. And then once it's ruled on here, that, that cascades down to everybody below it. Yes. And it's okay. important to remember that there is a big difference between state court and federal court. Yes. So uh, a state statute on... Uh, what might be an illegal use of a vehicle might apply to a federal case, but the reverse is not automatically true. Right, right. The state case is not is not going to apply to any other state. Uh, right, right, right. So we're talking here about matters of jurisdiction, matters of where the how the law is sort of filtered, how it how it kind of works where laws are applicable. Right. Okay. Okay, and that one, makes sense. One of the things that seems to set a lot of these people off is the idea that if they continue to be non-compliant, the state will employ violence against them. And let's remember, what is the sociological definition of the state? Uh, it's it's a community that claims a monopoly over the legitimate use of force in an area. And let's remember, laws and court decisions are ultimately backed up by force. That is true. You know, when people when people argue with me about, and I've never brought this up on the channel, but when people argue with me about might is right and whether that is a, a true thing or not, I know there's a moral argument against use of force and stuff like that, but I've always kind of thought, bottom line, if you have the force to, you know, to enforce your will on others, you're the one who gets to define what is right and wrong. <laughs> and I mean, in a in a very broad general sense. I mean, if you take if you sort of remove the moral question out of it, and you just look at how things get done in the world. That's kind of how things get done in the world. And that's, I'm, I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm not saying, hey, you know, that means it's always right in a sense of a moral right, but in the sense of that's what's going to happen. This is what's happening now. You know, here comes the army over the, over, 
over the, you know, the uh, mountains and they're going to they're going to take over. And there's really not a whole lot you're going to do about that. So, you know, from that definition of right, that's might is right, you know. And from a moral perspective, uh, does might make right? It might. Right. <laughs> uh, if you follow, uh, if you follow certain philosophies that were written, especially during times of uh, civil war, so Hobbes, Leviathan, his big argument was that if their people will give over their freedom to escape to pre preserve what freedom they have left. So during the civil war. It wasn't just uh, one faction brutally uh, massacring the supporters of another faction. There was a total breakdown in law and order. Small towns were fending for themselves. Uh, people who would have committed crimes in one area could just flee and rove around the countryside, murdering people at whim. It was a bad situation, not just because of the political violence, but because of the non-political violence and the instability it created, and things like the unpredictability made it hard to grow crops, to buy food, to get clothing. All of those things made the enduring state of civil war feel worse than even a particularly autocratic government. Right, because in times of civil unrest like that, especially civil war, all the structures start breaking down. I mean, you you know, all the things that you're relying on to be there, which are, you know, our concept of the state, quote unquote, uh, you know, when that's no longer there, then you find out just how vulnerable you really are in this big wide world, you know? And that's one of the major moral differences that you see between uh, those who have a law and order mindset and those who have a, uh, these people are trying to lock me in a cage because I didn't buy, because I didn't buy car insurance. Right, right. Yeah, it's a rough go. I think, you know, in a way, and I'm, we might've talked about this when I had John on, I, you know, it really, it, it's, it's not, uh, unless you're an extremist, unless you're on some kind of, you know, like these libertarians or, you know, some of these guys who get, I'm not saying all libertarians are extremists. Don't, don't, there are don't good arguments, there are bad mind. arguments. What's that? There are good arguments, there are bad arguments. Well, exactly. And we identify and then, the problems based on the bad arguments. Yeah, exactly. Because there's a, again, if you look at it as a spectrum of like, you know, authoritarianism and, and complete individuality and, you know, there are advantages to having a, a structured society you know, for all of us. But there's also the fact that you have to play by the rules if you're going to be in this society. And, and some people chafe at that, especially when the circumstances, especially economic circumstances, make it difficult or impossible to be able to comply with some of those rules. And so people turn to these weird solutions. That's the whole pseudo law thing, you know. I'm curious. Um, Beyond the argument of authority and ignoring certain factors about how the legal system works, um, when we were looking, when we were breaking down other, uh, you know, when you broke down other aspects of this, you mentioned uh, poor reading comprehension. Oh, yeah. <laughs> how does that, I mean, it seems fairly obvious how that would factor in, but how do you see that as, a, as somebody who's trained in the law, uh, you know, these people grossly misunderstanding this stuff? 
I see it as incredibly important mm-hmm. as a kind of non-ideological factor that either drives this or uh, furthers along confirmation bias. Uh, for example, uh, here is an administrative law textbook. Right. I guess there's a few words in it. Yes. Don't worry. If you don't get a concept, it will be repeated again and again and again in real life. In this book, you only have about one shot. When people try to learn the law from abstract guides, quite often they aren't there to keep on regurgitating reality. They end up putting one concept one way very quickly. And if you mess that up, any structure that's built on it is likely to be vulnerable to those kinds of mistakes. Yeah, in Scientology, we had um, uh, uh, an altered importance, is what it was called, where you, re- where you misprioritize information relative to other information because you simply don't understand this piece of information or this definition is, um, you know, is more broad or is more is more used or is more practical or whatever versus this one over here. But if you read, if you're just reading the dictionary, you don't get that distinction. You don't get that differentiation. This word is the same as this word is the same as this word is the same as this word. So everything kind of is the same as everything else. And speaking of definitions, one of the things that has been observed by other lawyers is Pseudo-lawyers have this weird obsession with Black's Law Dictionary. Yes, what's up with that? Is that like the authoritative, (laughs) you know, tome to use for lawyers, or is that just kind of some arbitrary thing? I mean, it's it's a well-respected dictionary, but that's all it is. It's a dictionary. It is there to help you understand the general concept of a phrase. Uh, It's not something that courts are bound by. Right. Well, let's actually address what you just said, because there's been a couple things you've said that have made that have made it very clear to me that there is an underlying, you know, below the definitions, below the 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 uh, argument from authority or, you know, the authority structure and all that. What do you learn in law school as a lawyer in training about what the law and the system itself, right, this, this all-encompassing sort of national system that we have, what's your concept of it as a lawyer? Because, uh, and, and how do you see that as different from, say, the concept you had maybe before you were a lawyer or what you see presented on entertainment or with these sovereign citizens? It's important to remember that the legal system is a system. It has to make decisions again and again and again. And people look to try to predict what's going to happen. The goal is not quite justice in an individual case. It is justice for society as a whole. And that might produce something that might seem unjust in an individual case. For example, uh, the city of Chicago was flooded during uh, an accident when trying to repair a wharf. Uh, Some 
large pole was being pounded into uh, the bank and it punctured, I want to say, a subway line or some kind of tunnel. The basements across Chicago were flooded. Hundreds of million, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of damage. Wow. Guess how much uh, the insurance companies and uh, plaintiffs recovered. The value uh, of the boat that did it. The value wow. of the, 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 the value of what? The boat that was driving uh, the poles. That, that's it? That's all insurance covered? Not, that's not all insurance covered. That's what they, the, they managed to get as damages from the perpetrator. Does that seem unjust to you? Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to like, think about, wait a minute, that's all they, like, I can't think, wait a minute, what? That's all they got? I mean, insurance companies had to pay out, but the insurance companies took a massive loss. Right, right. Okay. Uh, and there's a reason for it. The Supreme Court wanted to have kind of a limit to the amount of damages uh, ship owners would suffer uh, to encourage people to actually go out on ships. Shipping can be dangerous. Maritime activities can be costly. So if you can't limit the losses suffered, people are going to be less likely to do that. So it's been a longstanding principle of admiralty law, the law governing the private transactions of ships uh, and shipping, that Damages from an accident are limited to the value of the ship involved. Okay, I get it now. And this is where it, it came into conflict with regular land-based uh, concepts of damages. Right. Interesting. Interesting. So that seems that sort of thing is endlessly frustrating for people, but they tend to base those frustrations on just one case that is right in front of them right now or even maybe two or three what you might call bad calls or, or what they consider bad judgments, even though when you dig into the details, you usually find that these outrageous you know, court cases are actually based on some kind of standard. It's not just people being stupid, but people jump to that because they just don't know what else to think because they don't know about what maritime law, what? You know, I, until you just explained that to me, I would have been completely clueless about how such a decision would have been rendered. Well, speaking of ridiculous cases, have you heard about the hot coffee lawsuit? Oh, yes. I've heard all about that. Yes. Uh, yes, but why don't you go ahead and explain <laughs> for our audience, because I don't think a lot of people out there have. Well, uh, a woman went to McDonald's uh, and got a, a cup of hot coffee. And uh, she, popped, uh, she was in the passenger seat. Uh, I want to say her son was driving. They parked. She put it between her legs to uh, uh, take, take the cap off and drink it. And she spilled it on herself. And she got third-degree burns. And very, very painful. And this was an older woman. Yes. Uh, I want to... I can't remember, but I want to say she was in her 70s or 80s. Yes, I believe 70s. Yeah. And third degree burns is nothing to mess around with, guys. This is we're talking the worst kind of burns you can get. This Something like a whole bunch of skin grafts and $25,000 worth of medical damages. That's right. Uh, she, she sued. Oh, sorry. 
She asked for compensation from McDonald's initially. They, I want to say, offered her $600. Yep. I don't think she responded well to that. Nope. <laughs> and would any of you <laughs> right out there? Of course not. You know? Uh, so she sued. She sued, initially asking for $25,000. Again, McDonald's turned her down. Uh, and it went back and forth, and she got frustrated enough that she started asking for more money. And eventually it went to trial, and some facts came out. And the jury was so angry that they awarded two days' worth of coffee sales to her as punitive damages because they thought McDonald's had acted horribly. That's and right. And that, that huge sum of money, I can't remember, something like a million? I can't remember. It was over a million dollars. Uh, got the attention of the country. Right. Here's why the jury made that decision, and I think they were right to be angry. Uh, there had already been a couple hundred law, hundred lawsuits, just lawsuits, not not just uh, requests for arbitration and other things, based on being burned by McDonald's coffee. McDonald's coffee was, I want to say, twenty to thirty degrees hotter than industry average. That's right. There, there are indeed people had pointed out that that can cause. Uh, skin skin burns to the point of needing skin grafts. So senior management already knew that that stuff was dangerous, but they weren't ordering their people to treat it as a uh, as a uh, uh, third degree burn causing chemical. They were just treating it as regular hot coffee rather than the much more dangerous liquid that it was being served as. Their market research guys had even pointed out customers actually wanted it a little cooler. So it seemed like a rational business decision to make it cooler and also make it safer. But senior management decided, no, no, we know better. Customers don't want to drink the coffee right away. They want to take it with them on a 15 to 30 minute drive and then drink it. Right. Temperature. Right. I don't think the jury thought that was a, a good way to act. No, they didn't. But you know, the real, um, and, and she didn't end up collecting on that money, if I recall correctly. Not all of it. Uh, eventually, they settled out of court for a smaller sum. Right. And her reward, this old lady who got burned, literally burned by McDonald's, has to take you know, well over a couple of years of her life to do all this, because you know how court cases go. And her reward for standing up for herself and for everybody else and trying to make a safer environment, safer product, was the ridicule of the entire nation who said, this is just a, you know, an abuse of the tort system and it's ridiculous and how could we and suing over hot coffee, that's ridiculous, the butt of jokes. This poor woman, right? All because people don't really get what they're reading. <laughs> and I think it's also when they heard hot coffee, they thought 
hot coffee as served by other establishments, not it, hot coffee course. as served by McDonald's. That's right, because they didn't bother to actually look at the details because, you know, people are, I, I'm just commenting on, you know. But it's a common phenomenon that gets people into trouble. Right, exactly. But actually, you know, twisting this around a little bit, this is exactly the point of poor reading comprehension that we're on right now. And I'm actually, this is actually really good that you brought this up because look at how misinterpreted that case was across the entire nation by almost the entire population. I never heard once until I actually did my own deep dive into it. And Seth Andrews did his own. He actually did a whole talk on this one too. Uh, what the specifics of that case were. I thought like everybody else, bah, abuse of the legal system, bullshit suits, bah. You know, and I was really eating crow when I found out the whole story on that. I felt really bad and I felt really stupid for not actually looking into and understanding what it was that we're talking about. When you're talking about the legal system, you gotta really make sure that you actually understand what you're talking about with this, thus this podcast. But I, 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 I'll use that as a, you know, as a great microcosm or you know, macro example of these sovereign citizens or other people, the pseudo lawyers are really no different. They're reading things, but they, but they're not getting what they're reading. And so they make these, they end up acting in these really crazy ways. You know, Do, I mean, is that, is that pretty much oh, your, yeah. your assessment? Oh, yeah. It's a persistent pattern that gets them into trouble. Exactly. Uh, and let's remember that the hot coffee case was a real case, real people, largely being interpreted by sane people. So these were so the things that got the general population into trouble is going to get people with poor reading comprehension into a lot worse trouble. So was McDonald's completely in the wrong for only offering her eventually $25,000? I would think yes, but that's my own moral principle speaking more so than the letter of the law. And there's actually some continued dispute among lawyers about the case. Because even though McDonald's behavior was, I want to say morally inexcusable, uh, the previous cases had only netted, uh, in an almost identical case, had netted the person $25,000. Okay. So if the jury can award such massive damages, it makes the whole system very unpredictable. So it isn't, it's no longer a matter of, you know what the likely consequences are, and you know how to price prioritize it becomes a matter of how angry is the jury. Well, it's interesting because there's a there's an underlying there's another thing there though, which is bad behavior on the part of corporations and punitive damages, right? I mean, I'm not again, I'm not an expert on any of this, but I understand that's the whole purpose of punitive damages is to punish those who are engaged in moral wrongs. In a, with a system that is not a moral system, the, the legal system is not about your morality, but in the case of punitive damages, those are specifically created in order to punish bad behavior or what is perceived as bad behavior. Is that, is that right? Um, well, there are a couple of interests at play. One is compensation, and uh -huh. her initial medical costs were about $25,000. Right, right. So $25,000 would have compensated her 
at least a limited amount that the law recognizes. Right. Uh, Although there's uh, exactly because how do you compensate for the lost time and the pain and the suffering and all of that? That's, you know, that's one of the ongoing complaints about uh, the legal system, about how it has difficulty recognizing and handling non-monetary damage. Right. Uh, right, because it becomes arbitrary. You, 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 humans have to decide, and you know the, the factors they're deciding with could be very variable. <laughs> and that the arbitrariness is one of the problems, because right. if one case uh, costs a company twenty five thousand dollars and another costs it over a million, that becomes a huge unpredictable factor. Now, large corporations can even it out uh, by kind of putting a general amount of money into the legal defense fund and simply chalk it up to the cost of doing business. But then you have the whole question of one of the goals of one of the goals of law is that like cases should be handled alike. That the same set of facts should result in the same set of outcomes. And, and I think you would and I think we would want that. I mean that would be a that kind of predictability is exactly what is that the lack of that kind of predictability has been one of my, you know, teeth gnashing frustrations with the legal system is that is that the, the seeming arbitrariness of decisions. So if one case gets a small award and another case gets a massive award, is that arbitrary? Well, you can't you can't answer that question on that limited amount of information, right? Because you need to know they, they are the cases exactly the same, or is there some key difference? And that's one of the things that has worried the Supreme Court. So uh, I want to say in State Farm Mutual Automobile Association versus Campbell, in which the company acted horribly. Uh, they told people to stop making payments while they were trying to renegotiate a payment schedule and then foreclosed. Oh, wow. That was pretty bad behavior. Yeah. And the jury awarded, I want to say, over 100 times actual damages and punitive damages. And I have no love for State Farm on this point. Uh, and I think they deserved to get massive punitive damages. But the thing was, it kind of creates a system of the, the call has been jackpot justice. It's no longer a matter of what the facts are. It's a matter of the mood of the jury. And that destroys a lot of the equalizing goals of law. A conundrum to be sure. So you run into a, how do you deter, how do juries deter companies from acting in a horrible way, like McDonald's or State Farm, versus how do you, maintain some kind of a quality and predictability in the legal system. Right. These are fundamental right. goals that are in conflict. No, for sure. And I can understand why legal scientists <laughs> or philosophers, whatever you want to call them, the guys who actually, you know, pull the levers of the justice system, this is the kind of stuff these guys need to be thinking about. Um, because maybe it's a systemic issue. Maybe there's something with the jury selection or jury indoctrination or how juries conduct themselves or something like that that needs to be reviewed. I don't think there's any kind of education that would have stopped a jury from issuing those major damages in those cases because 
the facts were just completely horrible. Right. And is it the job of a jury to take such things into consideration? Probably not. You know, the job, I mean, I was looking at it from that point of view. It's like, it's, you can't put it on the, on the shoulder of the jurors to, you know, to, to make a call because they're considering the broader, larger implications beyond this one case. I, I think that's putting a bit too much on That's a maybe. That's a maybe. No. Because to judge whether or not the, the company has acted inexcusably, that's definitely yes. partially the role of the jury. That's right. That's the jury's to, job. That, to try that's to 100% the company, job. To try to deter the company, maybe. Right. Right. To decide larger issues of companies as a whole need to be held responsible? No. Exactly. So they, all I'm saying is, you know, I don't think it's a job of a jury to be concerned about, you know, precedents and case law and that sort of thing. I think they have to just focus on the case in front of them. Right. So, that, so that's why my mind went to, well, maybe there's something, and I don't know what, I'm just sitting here thinking out loud, but maybe there's something that needs to be done with either the jury process or, because you, I, what, I what I would reject is a solution of, well, we're simply not going to allow punitive damages anymore or something like that to even the, out the system, you know. The Supreme Court uh, put a single digit cap on punitive damages. So it's basically the max uh, the, they view as constitutional for due process reasons is nine times. Okay. Okay, so that's the model that you have to work with then. Okay, fair enough. So these kind of problems are things that come up as as uh, as legal scholars contemplate these issues. And that's a real case, a relatively simple case, without a lot of facts in dispute, without a lot of procedural difficulty. Right. Now imagine a complicated case. Yeah, exactly. Well, again, these are really just highlighting and pointing out for us laymen out here, you know, some of the complications that exist that we have never been familiarized with and couldn't, you know, couldn't know. And, and no amount of watching L.A. Law is going to show us these things. <laughs> you know, law, this kind of stuff isn't what they talk about on Law and Order, you know. Um, having never seen the show or in its entirety, it's whatever. Yeah, they're, I'm just saying that TV doesn't doesn't indoctrinate us uh, very well. Uh, okay, fair enough. Well, uh, what else? What else on this ignorance of sources then? Uh, there, there are different kinds of authority, mm. and let's remember that there, you have primary sources and secondary sources. Primary sources are things like court opinions, the Constitution, uh, laws. These are the these are the law in its most most basic form. Okay. Um, that's the direct binding authority. Now, laws from another jurisdiction are persuasive, but a court does not have to take that into account. Let me make sure I understand what you just said there. So I could be in a in a court in Denver arguing a case, and I could refer to a state level case that happened in Oregon, but I couldn't say because that happened, you must decide blah or blah. But I could say, hey, look, these guys said this about this. 
that's legal. Maybe we should do that. Exactly. Okay. Because okay. the goal for uniformity also applies. So if one state does it one way, that is not something the court has to do, but that makes it seem like a good idea. Okay. So those are the things that take precedence over, say, a definition in Black's Law Dictionary? Exactly. <laughs> okay. So what gets a lot of people into trouble is you have definition sections in statutes and you have definitions in Black's Law Dictionary and you have everyday definitions. Uh, so if you have one definition in Black's Law Dictionary, the sovereign uh, pseudo lawyers are gonna take it. Right. And quite often they use it as binding on everything, including a statute. Even if that statute itself has, in this section, this, this is defined as that. Okay. You know how words have several different, uh, the same word might have several different meanings? I'm very familiar with that, uh, yes. Uh, so uh, the, the thing is, lawyers are very familiar with that point. Something that almost every law student learns in the first few weeks of law school is the, uh, the chicken case. Importing company versus BNS International Sales Corp. It's about what is chicken. So you had a okay. contract for chicken. So what definition do you use? So the farmer. So I, I have no context on it, so I, I couldn't even begin to guess. So the farmer delivered chicken of a certain kind. Uh-huh. Uh, but apparently there was a, a usage within the uh, suit making industry, uh, which defined chicken and fowl as different. So uh, the soup company was saying, oh, the farmer didn't deliver any chicken because it didn't meet the industry standard definition of chicken. But for the farmer, I see them running around squawking, they lay eggs. Um, Those are chickens. <laughs> you said chicken, there's a chicken. Uh, so did the farmer actually meet the demands of the contract? Right. So the definition mean, of what is chicken in that contract suddenly becomes controversial. Yes. So you have chicken being used in everyday talk in a biological sense and a industry standard sense. And it's kind of, and then you have the way a statute has to try to regulate it. And you have to ask, is this trying to handle chicken in the biological sense? Is it handling it in the uh, soup making industry sense? Is it handling it in a uh, agricultural administration sense where you want to make sure that these are chickens and not ducks? Is this the reason why legalese is so hard to read for, for lay people, in addition to the, to the peculiarities of, of the specialized language, that, that, that legalese takes such care to be clear about what it is talking about? Yes. To the point that it's like pedantic, it's like hard to read? Yes. I had a professor who wouldn't take a case unless the amount in dispute was at least $10 million because wow. otherwise it wouldn't be worth her time. Okay. Because she had to research a whole bunch of 
stuff about how does this apply to that, etc. And okay. I, uh, little things like a comma can cost a million dollars. Right. Hey, everyone. This week, I've got something very interesting for you. Y'all know that I take a rather dim view on conspiracy theories because they tend to consist mostly of logical fallacies. But where do these ideas come from? What are the real historical facts connected with some of the most controversial figures in our past whose names are always wrapped up in conspiracies? Well, get this. The featured course for The Great Courses Plus this month is The Real History of Secret Societies. With this course, you can share my skepticism by getting a lot more data, historically accurate data, about secret societies and so-called conspiracies throughout history, including a whole lecture on Aleister Crowley and the Ordo Templi Orientis, something that L. Ron Hubbard was connected with and used in formulating the symbology and belief system of Scientology. So I think this is a course you're going to want to check out. <laughs> and this featured course is just one of hundreds of in-depth lecture series that you can watch or listen to from thegreatcoursesplus.com. The Great Courses streaming library allows you to explore and truly master any topic that fascinates you because you're learning from the world's best professors and experts in their fields. Don't miss out on this. Sign up for The Great Courses Plus today. My listeners get this fantastic offer, a free trial with unlimited access to the entire library. Sign up through my special URL today to get started. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash critical. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash critical. Uh, so you could say that, oh, come on, it's a chicken. Everybody knows what a chicken is. Right. <laughs> but if people are going to go off and do their own thing and try to have their own industry standards, you don't. Right. You have to be clear. And maybe the failing ultimately in that chicken problem was that the farmer and the, and the people who he was contracting with didn't have a discussion about that up front and clarify what they meant by this is what we want from you, you know? And so the farmer's like, well, I thought that's what you wanted from me. So really they end up in court, but really it was just a failure to communicate at the beginning of the whole thing, you know? Oh yeah. 90% uh, of learning is common sense. And if you're lucky, you'll never go to court. Oh, now that's an interesting statement. At least in contract. Okay, sure. In contract law, that makes sense. You don't, you, yeah, of course. All right, fair enough. Any, anything else to this business of, uh, of sourcing and, and ignorance of sources? Well, um, there's, they tend to take uh, reference works that try to kind of make a generalization about the law as a whole uh, and try to treat that as binding on law in a specific situation. Okay. Where there might already be established case law precedent and more specific laws about that particular subject. Right. So generally, uh, prisoners need to be read their Miranda warnings before a custodial interrogation. Mm -hmm. So you might have that abstracted to prisoners should be read their Miranda warnings. But that leaves out some very important 
facts. Like, That's right. That's there right. Are some exceptions. Oh, uh, where did you stash the gun? It's over there in the grocery aisle. That's an exception to Miranda. Cops can ask for matters of immediate public safety. Oh, interesting. Okay. Are, is a person required to answer? Um, you always have the right to remain silent, right? But you have to invoke it. So it's not you just- You literally have to speech. say it out loud. I am invoking yeah. my right to silence. Right. Okay. Okay. That's an important thing to know. <laughs> a lot of people getting angry about obstruction of justice charges could probably have saved themselves some trouble. Right. Exactly. Interesting. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Um, and, and anything more to this? Something to bear in mind is mm -hmm. that uh, quite often later cases may overrule older ones either because the facts have changed, so trying to apply the same legal principle is going to result in a different outcome, or because the old legal principle was considered a bad idea. Mm, and say. not knowing about that. So the fellow servant rule, it used to be that if you're injured by a fellow employee, you couldn't recover from the employer. You could only try to recover from the other employee, who quite possibly oh. didn't have money, even though it was the boss who put them in the situation where they likely may messed up. That's no longer the case. So the Supreme Court overruled that uh, a long time ago. So just because the case is old doesn't mean it's applicable. Right. You have to have a full layout of all the applicable cases and how they have affected this law since it was enacted in order to yeah. understand how that law is interpreted now. You can't just go to the books, read the law, and think that's the whole story. Right. Right, very important point. Okay. Okay, cool. Um, that's interesting. Okay, what's that last point you said? Inability to distinguish what? Um, distinguish between part of a law being struck down and an entire law being voided. Oh, some of a law can be taken down, but the whole thing could still be there. Right. Oh, I hadn't really thought about that. That's a good point. How does that work? So, for example, if part of a tax is considered unconstitutional, but part of it is considered constitutional, the court can strike out the part that's unconstitutional and leave the rest standing. So one thing okay. that people might do is say, well, this act was held to be unconstitutional, therefore, all the other provisions are void. Well, that's not the case. Uh, if uh, one part has been found unconstitutional, usually the rest of it stands. Or if it can be interpreted in a way that's constitutional, it will be allowed to stand. Okay. Even if one interpretation would be unconstitutional, the court will let it stand if uh, an interpretation can be constitutional. So it's a bias against overturning that which can be done legitimately. Okay. Could you give us an example of that? Well, you see it pop up a lot in tax cases, where if what uh, you might have one huge taxing bill, and part of it might have applied uh, an 
accidentally applied an extra tax to, say, publishing companies, which would violate the First Amendment. Therefore, that small part would be struck down. Okay, got it. How would how did this how did this particular aspect of of misunderstanding or not understanding the law or its problems? How did this occur to you in, when looking at what sovereign citizens do or quasi-lawyers do? Something, uh, something I, I want to say pseudo-lawyers, because there's nothing quasi about them. There's no <laughs> lawyer. <laughs> Sorry, pseudo-lawyers, yes. <laughs> um, a, a document I was reading just this morning was by standby... Uh, it was from a court in Florida by a petitioner, Jamal Abu Talib Hamin. You might guess that this person might tend towards a certain, uh, a certain. Could more... be Arabian, could be Middle Eastern, possibly. Probably not Middle Eastern. Okay. Uh, but the guy. Abdul? Would you believe that a lot of Americans change their names to sound more Arabic? No, I wouldn't believe that. Really? That's the truth? Yeah. No shit. You know all those people who add El Bay to the end of their name? No? El Bay? Oh, it's a more science temple thing uh, that ended up catching on in the 60s. Oh, yeah. No, I'd never heard of that. Sorry. Just never, never knew anything about it. Well, guess what? Cults can change people's names. Yeah, surprise. <laughs> This is this is why I love doing stuff like this. You learn the weirdest stuff. Okay, cool. So, uh, great. So, what was it that you saw that made you think of this? Uh, you know how a lot of people talk about lawful money and Federal Reserve notes are not money. Oh my God! Yes, it's like a mainstay of conspiracy theory with the with the uh, Federal Reserve system. Uh, well, there's another part of it that has to do with. Uh, the belief that uh, Congress can only print gold-backed money. Yes, the old gold standard argument. This is also part of that whole conspiracy theory. And uh, one, that's a misreading of the clause. Okay. Uh, but what actually uh, was happening in Constitution was that it, around the time the Constitution was being drafted, Inflation was a serious problem because it wasn't just the federal government printing money. It was states printing money and private banks printing money. Okay. Different kinds of currency floating around in the 13 colonies. Right. Okay. So one of the things that would have alleviated that inflation was by limiting the degree to which private printed dollars could be exchanged, making sure that states didn't just keep on printing money to uh, satisfy their debts and create hyperinflation, uh, which would then have to be accepted by other states. So it, by making it, making the federal government able to print money without gold backing, but making the states require gold backing, limited the way that the other states could uh, destroy each other's economies through hyperinflation. But I get it. The federal government able to act. Okay, so that's that's legal legislation acting to prevent economic disaster. Right, in the Constitution. Right. 
the way people seem to interpret it is that the federal government can only print gold-backed money. Okay, but that's not what it says at all. Right. Got it. It's okay. another case of reading including as excluding. Right. Okay, tracking on that. Interesting. So there are basically, I mean, when we walk through all these things that we have talked about here so far, you know, you really, if nothing else, you can appreciate the nuances, you know, and the need, not just the desire or wouldn't it be nice, but really the necessity of understanding all these different factors that go into how this system, we call the legal system or the justice system, how it actually works. Oh, yeah. And these are people, this is why I guess lawyers actually exist. I mean, it, you know, kind of silly summation, but it, it's kind of true. Like there's, and even within, even within lawyers, the super specialization of them. It's almost as if communication is kind of hard. <laughs> you think? Well, when it becomes precise, and maybe maybe this is a problem that people have because people don't necessarily talk or think in precise ways unless they are disciplined to do so through their profession. You know, scientists or doctors or lawyers have to be precise in what they're saying because it actually matters. But then there's this, this sort of thing of you get these, these experts and then you have the rest of the population and they don't know about all that stuff that they're, all these nuances and stuff. And so their understanding of it is common sense, quote unquote, you know, and there's a lot of parts of the legal system that are not common sense. <laughs> I think there's a personality difference there as well. Mm -hmm. So at least my personality is when I'm confronted by a situation, I want to break it down into many different elements and analyze yeah. each element on its own. So uh, you have the gold clause. Uh, what part of uh, the constitution is it in? Who does it apply to? What was the situation at the time? Can you imagine a situation in which anything other would have been drafted? And by breaking it down into elements, you start to get a whole or a, a larger understanding of the whole. And that's a very useful habit in law and in other fields in which you want to understand something in all its elements. But right, it's, uh, kind, of an, kind of an essentialism approach. But it's a lot slower in everyday life. Right, right. Interesting, uh, very interesting. So back to the bit about uh, not understanding the, understanding the implications of when part of a law is struck down, the rest can stay. Uh, one of the conspiracy theories about uh, the gold standard, the gold clause, was that if only gold back, gold and silver backed money is legal, then would suspending payment in gold. Uh, and allowing Federal Reserve notes to be money uh, make paying debts impossible. They believe that. Who, who was they? So uh, back in 1933, the House, House Joint Resolution 192 uh, suspended 
uh, payment in gold clauses and contracts and statutes. You could not pay a debt with gold as a metal, like bars or coins yeah. or something like that? You could. Oh, you could, you, you could pay you them. You could demand that it had to be. Oh, so you got it. Okay, you couldn't say, I will not take your federal notes, Mr. Banker. I will only take gold. Right. Got it. Uh, and part two, make it easier to move money around during the Great Depression. The way some people interpreted, interpret that uh, among conspiracists is that that makes payment in what they believe to be the only lawful money, gold and silver, impossible. Therefore, uh, there is no way to pay any debts and any demands for Federal Reserve notes, aka what that actually made freely use, usable money, uh, impossible. So some of them don't. Some of them don't believe that Federal Reserve notes are lawful money for things like paying taxes or uh, paying commercial debt or that uh, people can demand it of them. All right. Seems like a, just a basic general misunderstanding of what money is. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, like they have this idea that it must be paper backed by gold. And that's just not what money is. So it used to be partially as a measure to avoid hyperinflation. And when you decouple paper money with from gold, you make it possible for hyperinflation, but that's not a certainty. Right. And when you have money linked to gold or silver, you end up running the risk of de deflation. And that can be just as scary. Right. So the whole going off the gold standard might not have been quite the <laughs> maniacal machination of, of, of the international bankers that some conspiracy theorists make it out to be. Right. But believing yeah. that tends to get them into a bit of trouble. Right. Exactly. Now, I was, I, 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 yeah, familiar with that crap. Interesting stuff. So what do you think? Let's, let's move towards you know, a, a summation of this now, because we've covered a lot of stuff and I don't want to overwhelm people with too many details because we have given them a lot in this in this episode, a lot of stuff. There's a lot of chunky stuff to think about if you take some of these principles we've been talking about and look at look at the law and how it applies to you and how it's used, you know. How, what do you think a, a citizen's attitude should be, any, any citizen, you know, in the United States, towards the law and their relationship with it? I mean, is it just hire a lawyer and don't worry about it? Or, you know, is it worth their time to find out a bit more about this? And if so, what should they learn? I don't know, what do uh, you think? I would suggest people do both, hire a lawyer and worry about it. <laughs> uh, would you believe that there are, there's a bunch of cases about how long a person can sleep in court before it uh, jeopardizes the validity of the trial? <laughs> no, I did not know that was a thing. The judge? Including the judge. That's a little scary. <laughs> oh, come on. What's the worst thing that could happen? Well, I don't want the judge falling asleep on me in the middle of my case. Jesus, man, you know? Uh, but that should be illegal. There should be a law against that. Anyway. Surprise! Yeah, exactly, right? So, uh, okay, so they should be a little freaked out and they should call it and they should call a lawyer at the same time. 
more more seriously. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it, it is good to understand the law, but it's it's good to remember that ordinary human behavior has been shaped by law, and law has been shaped by ordinary human behavior. It's kind of co-evolving. Uh, whenever people try to pass laws that go too far beyond what humans actually do, it becomes unenforceable. Hmm. And people eventually stop doing it. Courts end up holding that they should give up on trying to do that, etc. Here's something that pr makes it hard for lawyers to deal with the whole pseudo-law phenomenon, and that's a moral element. Because lawyers are used to compartmentalizing between the justifications used by the legislature, the text of the law itself, justifications used by the court, and application to society as a whole. And the whole, uh, the whole merging of morality and application is not really something you think about because you accept that there are a wide variety of moral theories that are the basis that people pass laws on. Right. And some people don't seem to get all of those moral theories. Right. And I have taken a rather dim view towards Scientology's lawyers <laughs> on a moral basis, but I but I get what you're saying uh, in a more put in a more broad sense about how lawyers really do need to separate those two things if they're going to be able to do their job effectively. And lawyers mainly deal deal with the procedural aspects, right, uh, and the theoretical aspects not the explaining we have uh, we have uh, car insurance laws because uh, we don't want somebody to be injured. And if you're penniless, uh, the injured person is going to get nothing. Right. One of the major concerns. But lawyers are, well, yeah, that's the justification of the legislature. Is this constitutional? It is? Okay. Then we're just going to work with the law as it is. And that's one of the things that seems to be a major point of frustration for pseudo-lawyers, that they, they believe that if the law is immoral, then it isn't a law. Right. Right. And, and that's just not the way it is. That's not the world we live in. One, one thing I've noticed is that there's a habit among, among pseudo-lawyers to evaluate existing laws based on norms of what a law should do, not just what the law does, not just what the authority is. Uh, so it's kind of, you know how some people will try to justify a factual claim based on a moral argument, and then try to justify a moral claim based on a factual argument? the way sacred science works, you see the same thing among pseudo-lawyers. And that's not something that I really have the personality to pick apart because I'm not used to the way people do that. Okay. Do you have any insight? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, we're talking about bias. You know, people view the world the way they want it to be, not necessarily the way that it is. <laughs> and, they, an and that's... You know, is it an expectation of individual karma or something? 
Uh, tit for tat is what that really ultimately comes down to. And tit for tat is something that is not just a nice idea, but it's actually how nature works. I naturally tend to think in more collective terms. So mm -hmm. uh, I can accept that a system would be legitimate even if there's a mismatch between benefits and costs. As long as the person can perceive that those benefits and costs are ultimately um, beneficial to them as an individual, as well as the society as a whole, that's what makes a healthy society, I think. Um, quite often, yes. Right. But again, I'm taking this in collective terms. So a mismatch is tolerable and understandable. Mm -hmm. But I'm wondering if the very narrow scope of people just looking at individual cases and not checking for a, uh, the fact that they're hearing about uh, the most anomalous ones is what's causing them to think that the entire structure is, uh, is insane. Yes, that would be the logical fallacy, right, of overgeneralization, taking specific case, blowing it up to this is how every case is. That's, that's just straight up fallacious thinking. But, uh, but does what, do people's sense of obligation disappear when they think that their sense of benefit is disappearing? And that's one of those mismatches. There's uh, a lot so of factors. I mean, we, it's all context specific. Oh, well. Yeah. Um, you can find cases where people act altruistically. You can find cases where people act selfishly. And if you and, and you might on the surface go, well, this is a good person. This is a bad person. But what you really need to drill down to is uh, all the factors that drive behavior as to why one person, you know, in this particular context acts selfishly and this other person acts altruistically. It's very dangerous to make very broad statements on on a, on a case sample size of one, you know? Okay. Um, it's one of the elements that I am not, I think differently enough that I can't follow their line of reasoning too closely. Uh, what I just said? Uh, uh, no, no. Uh, these people, the, uh, oh, the pseudo -women. Oh, the sovereign citizens. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, they're on a, yeah, that's, you know, I was talking very basic human behavior things as Very far as what drives broad human behavior I'm yeah no no sovereign citizens I'm are in a whole yeah we addressed sovereign citizen motivation in our last podcast on this this is what i was talking to john about i think john p capitalist was mainly focused on the economic rationale but i yes. think the moral the moral reasoning rationale is stronger because what do you, what do you mean by that uh because you get people devoting a, a large amount of time to activities like putting, uh, writing hundreds of pages uh, of material, uh, creating a deliberately confrontational attitude with cops uh, because they believe they're standing on their rights. Uh, I, they're doing stuff to attract the attention of cops, like putting a whole bunch of signs on their vehicles. And that's kind of a, an immediate signal to cops that this person has something off with them. Let's go take a look because they're probably doing something wrong. Exactly. The, the, the motivation there is righteousness. 
they feel a sense of righteous anger. Yes. And under my knowledge of various moral theories, that would seem to be unjustified. But there is, I think, in the whole mixing up of factual and moral arguments, something that makes them feel that they're that they're righteous. And I can't follow that because I'm so used to separating issues. Okay. Yeah, no, it just has to do with basic survival issues. You know, the socioeconomic factors are 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 important because of that. There's people generally do not try to take bad beliefs or bad arguments. They fall into them. Mm-hmm. And I think there's uh, some defects in the basic reality checking that causes them to think this stuff is plausible. And what do you, what do you think there? Yeah. One of them, I think, is failing to recognize that everybody else is working within a system that has already considered a whole bunch of things. Law is an evolutionary process. It's been evolving for thousands of years. Odds are you haven't come up with a new idea. Odds are courts have already considered it. Odds are courts have considered it so many times that they just don't want to publish it because the reported reported cases already run into the thousands of pages. Right. Right. Uh, We're certainly familiar with that. Uh, another factor is people might find thought experiments a little too persuasive. And thought experiments can be valuable in that they can show that something is theoretically possible, or they might highlight how people think. Uh, and they might be able to disprove, they might be able to prove the possibility of something, but they can't prove the probability of something. They can't prove the steps that it takes to get there. And a lot of what is involved in legal disputes is the steps that it takes to get there and about the authority that's involved. So trying to construct thought experiments of, uh, can you imagine any way in which a car would be regulated differently than a uh, horse? Well, I can certainly think that, but some people won't because they're just thinking about transportation. Right, right. And there's also the way that Law does sometimes use words differently. So there, you run into people who keep on fighting cops based on, I have a right to travel uh, as a basis for why they don't have a driver's license, insurance, and taxes. Right. It turns out there is a right to travel, but it's the right to travel generally throughout the country, but it doesn't cover the means of transportation. And it's exactly. that can be regulated but they're not making that distinction. They tend to think of this as absolute right. So any regulation is illegitimate, is an infringement, and therefore uh, unconstitutional. I have, there is a growing class of people, or I, I can't say for sure it's a growing class. Actually, I should take that back. There is a class of people who have the exact same reasoning on the Second Amendment. Um. I've 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 inter, I've interacted with them because there are some arguments that are legitimate and some that aren't. You have to look at the specifics in these. Oh no, I get that. I'm just making the comparison that there are people who are Second Amendment purists, as they call they kind of call themselves that, or they're Second Amendment guys, and they 
just want completely unfiltered, unregulated. Anybody can do anything they want with any kind of arm of any kind. Are, are you talking about the? Be, you know? Are you talking about the people who walked into a Dearborn police station with uh, long arms uh, uh, in the low ready position, with video cameras on, with something like eight different guns and? They seem to act shocked when the cops held them at gunpoint and disarmed them. Uh, I could be referring to people like that. I don't know that those people specifically were two A purists, but I, I have interacted with some of them, so uh, I've had that experience, and I was quite surprised uh, by it. I shouldn't have been, but I was because I always thought that it was extremely common sense and very, very practical that we would have regulations of some kind on our rights. There is no such thing as an unlimited absolute right. They, that just doesn't exist in the practical world. So it's it was fascinating to me to run into that class of people. Okay. Um, you There's the habit of reading including as only consisting of. Mm-hmm. So when people uh, in statutes uh, want to make sure that, okay, people might forget about this, but we really definitely want people to remember that this is also part of the category. They'll write, including X, Y, and Z. Well, it, is, it doesn't mean that it's only X, Y, and Z. It means that it's X, Y, X, y and Z and a bunch of other stuff. So uh, a common thing would be, Motorized vehicles includes golf carts. Right. It, it's not that the only motorized vehicle is a golf cart. It's that uh, some people don't think of golf carts as motorized vehicles for some purposes. So you include it and make it absolutely freaking obvious. But then you run into people who read it as only, and then you run into, okay, this this guy's making a bunch of claims. I'm gonna check. I'm gonna check what he's citing. Oh, hey, it does actually say that. And because they read including differently, they're gonna follow the same reasoning, and it's going to look like the person who's putting forth the false legal claims is right. Interesting. Interesting. So framing is, has a lot to do with this, or understanding the framing. Framing is one thing, but. Critical grammatical terms are another. Right. So like the gold clause thing, that tends to set a bunch of conspiracy theorists off because of the way they read it. Right. And I don't think it's that they were conspiracy theorists and then they wrote, read it. It's a matter of it's caused by the same thing. That's right. That's exactly right. And that's, again, that that point I was making earlier about perception. You know, the world is what we want it to be, not what it really is, often. You get some of the same thing with shall and may. So you might have a statute saying that the, uh, the head of the IRS may grant exemptions based on da-da-da. It's, it's, it's not a requirement that they do. They have some discretion in that regard. So right. If they don't get it, you might run into a bunch of people saying, what, I had my right to that exemption. No, you didn't. That was at discretion. It's may, not shall. Exactly. You run into other places. So basically, it's just very important to understand the language and how it's used. Oh, yes. Yeah. And you run right. into, 
you run into other things, and I think this is maybe the biggest push for violence among these people, is that they don't understand the difference between an arrest and a detention. So cops can detain a person for a short time to conduct an investigation, and that's legal. There are some standards for it, but to claim that uh, I'm being held against my constitutional rights is likely to be a false interpretation and get courts angry. But it's also something that gets people very riled up. And I think that's a contributing factor to a bunch of those shootings that happened. Um, Interesting. Interesting. And, and very salient to the point. Yeah. Uh, I, there's just, this is why education is just, you know, so important in our country. And and equality, uh, you know, opportunity of education. Because some of these some of these folks who get into this stuff are clearly not well educated people. Uh, I don't want to get started on my complaints about the American educational system. No, no, wasn't wasn't looking for feedback there. Just throwing that comment out. <laughs> uh, final thing. Yes. Some people don't understand the difference between the civil uh, system and the criminal system. Ah. And that's one of those fundamental differences in law. The criminal justice system is where the state is prosecuting someone. It's where the state is acting on its claims. It's where the state is acting on the behalf of society as a whole. And the state has the ability to enact a whole different range of punishments. It has a higher standard of evidence and it has very different procedures. The civil system is where a private individual is acting against another private individual or even the government. Uh, for example, uh, suing the government because they didn't pay on a contract the right way. But the thing is, it's private individuals and the standards for that involve an injured party. So you have people mixing the systems in an insane way. So when people talk about victimless crimes, they think that it means that uh, it can't be a crime unless there's a victim as they see it. Uh, so if it's something that's more of a preventative thing, such as uh, get your driver's license so it's harder for people to do a hit and run, they don't see that as uh, causing a victim. Well, the victim is the possibility of someone be being the victim of a hit and run, but they don't see it that way. So by understanding the difference between civil and criminal, you avoid falling into the trap of trying to follow procedure in one case and getting completely blindsided. So when people talk about jurisdiction, when lawyers talk about jurisdiction, that's usually a civil matter. Which state handles it, which court handles it. In criminal, that's almost never an issue, but people try to fight it and they lose almost constantly. Interesting, interesting. Man, this is a complicated topic, but uh, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, yeah, I'm gonna cut us off now because this is uh, we have covered a lot of territory here. Actually, much more than I thought we would, which I'm happy about. I want to thank you for taking the time to do this, and thank you for giving me the opportunity. And I can talk for hours on this stuff. <laughs> well, I'm sure we will talk again in the future because I. I uh, I, I'm very happy that you are a resource for this show, and uh, and I like picking your brain <laughs> and having these talks. So, I, so again, thank you. Well, uh, thank you all for listening, and I would like to point out that uh, uh, Chris has a very <laughs> good show. 
Uh, remember, there is a cure eventually. <laughs> That's right. That's and, right. Critical and, thinking. Folks, any questions, comments, or feedback, leave it in the comments section below here on YouTube or at sensiblyspeaking.com. Uh, I'm sure that, uh, you know, when we get this thing posted, Cyprian might be willing to check out the comments and respond accordingly. So uh, this will go up, uh, you know, when it goes up, and I'll, I'll let him know about that. Thanks for coming around. I'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye.